Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, charter schools have been the center of ongoing controversy in California, as many of you are well aware. But this week, we'll be looking at an issue that hasn't gotten much attention, but we think should. The role of local and county school boards that give charter schools permission to operate in the first place. They're called charter authorizers. The charter school task force that sent its recommendations to Governor Gavin Newsom this month couldn't reach a consensus on a lot. But the 11 members were unanimous in agreeing that California's charter authorizers need a lot of help approving, renewing, and monitoring charter schools. We also talk about an issue that affects almost every student who attends a public school in California, the physical condition of the classrooms and the overall facilities where they go to school, and how do you pay for improving those facilities? We'll look at where things stand with regard to a $13 billion school construction bond that districts and community colleges hope to see on the March 2020 state ballot. That was the topic of an EdSource webinar on Tuesday, and the bill that will put the bond measure before voters move forward in the legislature this week. Last but not least, we'll check in with Oakland Unified Superintendent Kyla Johnson-Trammell about her thoughts on the daunting financial challenges and labor strife her district has been going through this year. But first, let's talk about charter schools. John, as you know, the task force that Governor Newsom wanted to be set up to look into reforms of charter school laws sent its recommendations to the governor. And we took a closer look at those recommendations. And it turns out that most of the recommendations that the 11-member committee agreed on unanimously had to do with the authorizers. And one of the things they called for was, and I'm just quoting from the report, clearly articulated, reasonable, and rigorous statewide oversight standards that they said were needed to ensure a fair means of evaluating charter schools. And also some training for districts so that they know how to actually go ahead and implement those standards. Yeah, and they also suggested that there should be perhaps a statewide entity that would kind of oversee the authorizers, which was interesting. The extent to which it would actually authorize as opposed to train and provide guidance, I think that's one of the points that would have to be negotiated in legislation. It turns out there is a model for the kind of statewide entity that the task force seemed to have in mind And we're very pleased to have Teresa Capellas, who is executive director of CarsNet. Uh, Teresa, just fill us in very briefly on what is CarsNet. The Charter Accountability Resource and Support Network is an organization that was started through a federal grant program back in 2015. And it was funded and opened in order to provide resources and best practices for charter school authorizers, which are districts and county offices in California. How challenging is it to authorize and then to oversee a charter school? When it comes to overseeing and monitoring those operations, there tends to be three major challenges that we have, and that's lack of capacity, lack of resources, and lack of training. The staffing time and expertise that is needed to review charter applications is difficult. And like I said, charters run themselves, but we do have an obligation and duty to monitor them, and that takes time, sometimes lots of time. The next thing on lack of resources, school districts don't often have the luxury of spending time to create tools for oversight. 
CarsNet was able to create many tools and templates using the best practices found in the field. And that's one of the things that we have done well is to get people together and collaborate on building those tools and best practices. Then the third thing, lack of training. You know, we all need training, but a lot of times we don't focus on this type of training until a petition's at our door. Or there is a problem with charter schools that we've already authorized. Teresa, this is a particular problem for small districts, is it not? As Lewis said in a recent story, there are hundreds of districts, many of them small, and there usually is not even a full-time person who's responsible for oversight of charters. Is that true? That is. That does become a problem, especially when you have that small school district that does not have the resources or staffing to be able to do the work. This does seem to be an issue that has kind of been on the back burner. Absolutely. The focus has been on charter schools, and there never really has been much capacity built up in the area of authorizing or guidance. So, you know, CarsNet really was created out of necessity. There appears to be a consensus on both sides of the equation that good, sound authorization is better than what we currently have. Yeah, I I believe that, by and large, districts and county offices want guidance. There really is no argument about the fact that we need, you know, taking our best practices and making guidelines for the state. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Teresa Capellis, Executive Director of CarsNet, which helps school districts and county boards of education be more effective authorizers. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. A couple of years ago, I went to a statewide conference that CarsNet sponsored. It was in Oakland, and I was impressed with how much the school district representatives who were there, how much they valued that training and how much information they felt they needed to do their jobs. Well, this is really an important piece of this whole charter jigsaw puzzle, I would say. It turns out there's about 335 charter authorizers in the state, most of them local school districts. And of those, 150 school districts or so only have one charter school. They don't have, like Los Angeles Unified, has over 60 people in their charter school division. So overseeing charter schools in most of these districts really is a part-time job for most people. And then it has the potential to affect the quality of the charter schools that get authorized in the first place and then don't really have adequate oversight. Exactly. And then also, you know, there are a lot of challenges that occur over the life of a charter school. And and it's good to have a good relationship between a district and a charter to deal with these issues as they turn up. But that requires expertise and knowledge. Seems like it would benefit both sides, both the charter sector, that there's oversight that's valued, that means something. And also then that these local districts can get some, some help. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what Governor Newsom does in response to those recommendations. Let's move to something a little more concrete. No no pun intended, John. I'll forgive you, Lewis. <laughs> but the issue of school buildings and the need to build new ones, the need to modernize them, renovate them, big problem in California. There's now a big push to put a new bond measure, a multi-billion dollar bond measure on the ballot next March to coincide with the presidential primary in California. That's what school districts and community colleges would like to see. 
And there is a bill that's sponsored by Assemblyman Patrick O'Donnell from Long Beach that would do that. Because the way it works is the legislature has to approve a bill and then it has to go to the voters for approval. That's right. Well, just let me ask you about that. Because it seems like yesterday there was another bond measure on the ballot. I mean, multi-billion dollars. Uh, why do we need more money? It's already been depleted. In fact, Patrick O'Donnell said at a hearing on Wednesday, there are already $500 million worth of projects in the pipeline. So I think there's general recognition that there is a bond needed, and he's proposing two, one in 2020 and then 2022. When we think of California, we don't really think of old sort of crumbling schools. Is there really a need for this kind of investment? Well, you'd be surprised how much need there is. A lot of so-called portables, they've been around 50 years in some cases. Also, we're looking at modernizing and updating because we're looking at a different view of schools now. Libraries have changed. We have labs, maker spaces. The nature of schools are changing, and we want to have it more collaborative place where students can work together. So all of this requires either new construction or preferably modernization. And one of the things that came up this week in our webinar, which I hadn't really thought about, which is how do we build buildings in fire zones or flood zones? And of course, we're always having to take another look at seismic safety standards. Yes, we saw what happened to schools in paradise with the fire. And I think we're concerned about climate change and the impact of fires and other disasters on school, as well as lead in water, which is something we hadn't thought about before. And we want to deal with that contamination issue. And there's another issue that a lot of people are concerned about legitimately. And getting down to fact study by Jeff Vincent and others at UC Berkeley showed that the funds, the bond monies, haven't been spent equitably they have benefited districts that are serving higher-income communities. So the, the whole formula issue is up for grabs. Is that right, John? Well, it's not up for grabs. It's going to take a case of persuasion. And Jeff presented some really good data that shows, particularly when it comes to modernization, that wealthy districts and districts with above-average incomes pass larger bonds they can afford to, and therefore they get the larger match because the state matches whatever you pass in your local bonds. So as Governor Brown would say, Equal is not equity, right? Everybody gets equal chance to get a match. But if you can't afford to do it, such as Fresno, then your schools are going to suffer because your parents can't afford and people in the community can't afford to raise the money that leads to the state match. And there's also been a problem that the wealthier school districts tend to have more staff. I mean, certainly the larger ones to put in applications for the bonds. And we've basically had a first-come, first-serve system in California. So if you're not in line, you're kind of out of luck. That's exactly it. And a lot of small districts don't have the capacity and the people to do that. This bill, Patrick O'Donnell's bill, does begin to deal with that. He'd say you're going to provide management consultants and technical expertise to the small districts. And see, that will help. We'll see if it works. But the overall equity issue, O'Donnell said we'll consider it in a 2022 bond. Let's pass 2020 as it is. I'm open to the ideas. I'm not sure he's persuaded that there is a problem. I think it's going to take some time and informational hearings and a lot of discussion for people to recognize that the current system really needs to be amended. By the way, in case you missed our webinar, it's now up on our website. Just go to edsource.org and you can watch it. It was an interesting hour-long discussion. Let's turn now to Oakland, where Superintendent Kyla johnson Tramell is coming up on her second year anniversary in the district. It's been an eventful couple of years, to say the least. Superintendent johnson Tramell, she actually grew up in Oakland, she went to school there. She was a teacher, a principal, spent an entire career in Oakland. 
it's been a tough couple of years. As I said, I'm sure as many of you will recall, there was a teacher strike earlier this year and also big financial problems that the district has been facing. We met with the superintendent in her office. Uh, she's actually seemed quite upbeat, confident about where things are going in the district, despite uh, the challenges she faces. There were some sound problems, I have to say. It wasn't exactly studio quality, but we thought that her comments were important and interesting enough to bring them to you. So uh, let's hear from the superintendent. I asked her how the district is dealing with the fallout of the teacher strike. Whenever you have a lot of labor conflict, it's definitely a slow and steady healing process. And I would say that we are in the midst of that healing process. Those types of emotions don't resolve themselves overnight. So it may feel like a long time since February, but we're talking months out of having some pretty heated tensions. And so we are taking the time necessary to really repair the relationships that are needed and really listen to the things that we need to do um, differently to have more communication and just let everybody process what's a pretty major event that occurred in our district as well as many districts around California. One of the big questions, of course, is whether the district is in a position to meet the terms of the contract, whether you have the financial ability. Where do things stand on that front? Well, we definitely have made some of the difficult adjustments that we need to make in the next two years. And we knew going into the agreement that in out years, um, knowing that we have increased pensions, knowing that we're going to have increased necessary investments in special education, knowing that we're predicting that our enrollment is going to be stagnant, at least in the next three years or so that as we move to some of the out years, that we may have to make further adjustments. But for now, in the upcoming year, in the year after that, we are able to afford the investment that we need to make. And our financial situation is an economic environment that we always have to keep close watch to. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think when people talk about Oakland and the financial situation, the term insolvency Mm -hmm. comes up. Mm -hmm. Could you just address that issue? I mean, does... Oakland, does the district face that prospect? At this time, for the year 1819 and 1920, no. However, given our history, given the fact that we've been in state receivership, given the fact that we have had instability, it's something that we have to keep a close watch on. Part of what we're trying to do is not just look at, are we okay for this month, for closing up the books for next year, but to really look at where we are over a three to five year trajectory. And so there is reason to continue uh, to be extremely cautious, knowing the increased cost where we are in terms of our revenue. So we aren't at risk of being insolvent for next year, but that doesn't mean that we still don't have to keep a close watch on where we are and to continue to look for ways where we can generate more revenue. Okay, so let me ask you about charter schools. The school board did vote requesting that the state impose a moratorium on charter school expansion, but that has not happened. Efforts in the legislature to impose a moratorium didn't go through. The charter task force has not recommended that. Just wondering if you had any thoughts on where that leaves the district now, now that it doesn't seem to be the state, doesn't seem to be moving in that direction at least. Well, either way for us, given the number of children that we have in charter schools, 
it still doesn't take away, even if that had gone through, we still have the schools that are within our ecosystem that are authorized by the district. And there's still the work that we have to do to figure out, do we have our charter schools, you know, placed in the best facilities so that we're not unintentionally impacting district schools or unintentionally impacting charter schools? You know, are we creating policies so that we figure out the best ways to have both of those different types of public schools um, working together so that we can accelerate the quality for our students? So whether those legislative efforts change or pass, there's still the work that we have to do internal because we have so many students that flow between both district public schools and charter public schools. You mean even if there'd been a moratorium, you would still have all those students in those schools? Correct, because a moratorium would have just provided some barriers in terms of new charters coming into our fold, but we still have the charters that are already authorized. And so that is more of where our community wants us to do the hard work of really figuring out you know, how are we both making decisions that aren't unintentionally creating a financial impact on district schools, but we're also looking at how do we make sure on both sides that we're creating schools that have increased quality for students and families. Just quickly, I mean, I imagine you, you read the Charter Task Force's recommendations. One of the recommendations is to give school districts the ability to take, uh, they call it saturation of charter enrollments into account in granting charters. I think that's probably the most significant part of that report. Is that something that makes sense to you? Would that help Oakland or affect it in any way? I think the work that we need to do is really focus on um, continuing to be aggressive and strategic around enrollment efforts. Our community really wants us to focus on quality and not get caught up in the politics of district versus charter schools. That's not necessarily in the best interest of our students. What we need to do is continue to be strategic and intentional around enrollment and recruitment. We have a lot of new families that are moving into Oakland, and so making sure that our families know what's available in our schools so that we can attract families to the schools and really focusing on the quality pieces, as well as what we were talking about before, being diligent about our finances. But do you think that Oakland has reached a saturation point in terms of charter enrollments? Well, in general, when we look at, again, the number of schools that we have and enrollment, on all fronts, if you take a 360 degree look, we've reached a saturation point when we look at the cost of what is needed for a quality school. There's just a need for us all together to kind of take a step back and really look at how many schools we need collectively when we think about what each school truly needs to be able to actually invest in and realize quality for students and families. So what are you really looking forward to during the coming year? I'm looking forward to being back in classrooms. That's what kind of gives me energy, seeing our students and our teachers and principals at work really making learning happen for our students. I'm looking forward to continued vibrant discussions around how we get more quality in all of our schools. Looking forward to more creative problem solving. And definitely in the summer, more reflection time um, to figure out how we continue to do this great and incredible, challenging, crazy good work. That was Superintendent Kyla Johnson-Tremell from Oakland Unified. And we look forward to hearing more as this year unfolds. 
And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 